So I was probably 15 or 16 years old and I had obviously the only thing I knew about him then were like the old goth rumors that people would say about him. Uh, but he was, I was just riding my bike through town because that was what you did, you know, when we were kids in war and everybody rode their bikes. We hung out at the, the swing, we called it, which is now gone. That was at the corner of Conowango and Penn. Uh, but I was just, I was probably out looking for my friends. Um, and you always look for where their bikes are. That was how you knew where everybody was. So I checked Point Park and Damien was the only one there. And he was sitting on a rock playing his guitar. So naturally, I, I just, just started getting into playing guitar. So, and I was just never really a shy person when it came to uh, interjecting myself into other people's days. So I rode my bike over to Damien and, you know, it was like, hey man, I play guitar too. Did he scare you at all? Yeah, no. Was it no? No, no, no there okay. was nothing. He was, I just remember him being really nice and was like, oh, okay, you know, like, and we talked about guitar for a little bit and I, I went on my way. And uh, of course it wasn't, but a few years after that, that I started hanging out with Steve uh, because of Master Skater, meeting him there and we became really close. And uh, by way of Steve, I became, you know, fairly close with Damien because he was around with Steve, you know, they lived together or lived in the same apartment building, but then, ultimately lived together on Cedar. Uh, so I became friends with Damien that way, and I'll never forget that uh, one of the first things he said to me after we'd been hanging out, well, I shouldn't say one of the first things, something he said to me when we were, after we'd been hanging out a while, was that uh, one of the reasons he liked me was because he remembered, you know, a couple years ago or whatever it would have been, that I approached him at Point Park and he told me like, I wasn't afraid of him. He was yeah. like, I like that you just came up to me and treated me like I was normal. That's and awesome. I, yeah, so uh, that was, you know, kind of how that all transpired with the, the conversation that him and I had, but. Um. From Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. Since the last episode, I've had several people ask me to tell the theory I developed to get a new search of the ANF conducted. No. Sorry, but no. But here is where I'll do you one better than law enforcement usually does, and other officials, and I'll tell you why. I know a lot of you listening right now have told me some things and then looked me right in the face and said the words to me. Not a lot of people know that, or I can't believe I told you that. I don't take that shit lightly at all. Those of you who've told me things have told me those things with no guarantee of what would happen because of it. And many of you kept those things to yourselves for 20 years only to tell some random chick who sent you some random Facebook message. If you're not one of those people, you're trusting that I'm representing people as they are and their statements as they were given. You're trusting the hell out of me not to lie to you, or else you're going around behind me and double-checking, which is also fine. I encourage it. I take that shit no lighter. There are two competing demands for me as your storyteller, the demand for truth and the demand for entertainment. There's a reason we're generating the kind of energy around Damien's story that we are right now, listeners, and that's because everyone is entertained. That's great. I want that. That's what I've worked so hard to do. But even harder, I have worked to make sure that your entertainment is ethical. There are all kinds of true crime shows out there, from podcasts to primetime. You can get your fill of grisly details and salacious public shamings anywhere. That's not what we do here. Two Moms Media is audio storytelling with a soul. I'm not producing train wrecks, and I won't share anything with you until I'm confident in it. Your Daily Local is about getting back to true journalism. They're not going to report things without making sure their sources are solid, Brian and I are not out to lure you with tabloid-style headlines or sensationalism. There's a chasm of difference between a theory and a narrative. A theory I'm confident in does not a publicly consumable narrative make. And that sucks for the entertainment value of this show. I get it. You want to know who I thought did it, and what the hell I thought they did, and how, and why, and... It would be fun to lay the whole thing out for you in an episode, but it would not be ethical. 
That theory contains names, details of people's lives and relationships, and other things that are not for public consumption. If someday some element of that theory transitions into fact, you better believe I'll be shouting it from the rooftops, but not until it's relevant, not until it moves Damien's story forward in a meaningful way, and not until I can point to something tangible that reinforces its words. I hope that makes sense. Just like I illuminated details from the affidavit you heard read in episode three, it's an editorial decision. It's a hard one to make because it's a thousand editorial decisions every day and they never stop. It's frustrating as a researcher to come across Rick Hernan in 2002 referring to information and not elaborating on it. Believe me, I know. But I had to work around it, and unfortunately, so will listeners until it's ethical and responsible for me to share mine. I owe the people who gave me that information that at the very least. So why tell you about the search at all, if nothing came of it then, right? Because one of the first questions I get asked every time I talk to someone about this case is, did the police do anything? We can only go by the records and the recollections that exist on that, but I can speak for what I've seen. So that's what I'm going to do. It's as simple as that. Now, May 25th, 2002, 6 p.m. Damien standing on Prospect Street, parting ways with James, where he's just been hanging out for about an hour. What the hell? What happened after that? No idea yet. But as I was investigating this, I found my way to the mansions almost immediately. That's where the trail and the paper went cold, and in real life. But speaking of information known that wasn't disseminated before now... I can't actually give you some of that, because as of today, we're all going to know what went on in that apartment from the time Damien exited his friend's car to the time he exited that apartment, according to James. Before I spoke with James in January, the focus of my curiosity was on that hour or so when Damien was hanging out there. I wanted to know so many things. What actually happened in that apartment, I wondered. What did they talk about? Was Damien really trying to pick up weed that night? Was he after something else, as a few people told me? Was he looking for harder drugs? Did they spar? Did they make plans? Part of the problem with the stories I'd heard about that time before he disappeared is that numerous sources have said that he supposedly made a phone call from the apartment. So who'd he call? I mean, it's referenced in the newspaper, so who did he call? Furthermore, how did he not have a ride from that apartment? He needed a ride there. He would have needed one wherever else he was going, right? As we've covered in past episodes, I have my own little history. I've been known to be at a few of the places that Damien hung out from time to time, but infrequently and awkwardly, as generally is still my way. The mansions was never one of those places. So I reached out to the landlord's family, the ones who gave me that rental ledger. According to the ledger, a woman named Christine moved into apartment 12 the year before James lived there. The apartment is small one of 13 in a 4,450-square-foot house, according to the Warren County Assessment Database. The apartment James lived in, apartment 12, had gone from 175 a month in January of 1978, according to one loose page in this amazing slice of ephemera, to 190 in 1980, 205 in 82, 250 in 84, and 275 by 86. By 96, it was up to $360, and rent stayed at $380, from the fall of 1997 through Christine's tenure when she left in May of 2001. Weirdly, the newspaper is listed in the tenant space in April of 2001, and the rent was $550. Well played, sir. Well played. Anyhow, James moved into apartment 12 in January of 2002, paying $200 down on a $780 rent plus deposit combo on January 23rd, the ledger says. In March, his girlfriend moved into the apartment with him. His rent was paid in full and on time or ahead every month. He paid in full on April 1st, then again for May on April 30th. June 1st, again, rent is paid, but in July, a note appears next to James's name. Used deposit. Sitting there last fall, trying to think through that initial sparring accident theory, I knew that just slow rolling the mansions in my car like a damn creeper wasn't going to cut it. I needed to see that apartment. One thing that struck me from my many visits, though, brought one feature screaming to the forefront of my mind first thing. How would Damien get to apartment 12, I wondered. Because from the right side of the building, if you're looking at the front, 
A huge exterior metal staircase, similar to a fire escape, links the top half of that place to the ground. If Damien needed a ride to the house, I wondered, how was he climbing that staircase to get inside? After talking with the landlord's family, I was able to get an introduction to the current owner of the property, and on October 30th, at way too early in the morning, I met him for pre-walkthrough coffee and some storytelling. I've been in the deepest guts of that building, you guys, and what I can tell you is that the apartments are small. If a TV was on in the next room, as James said in our conversations, you could hear it. There's no way that Damien got knocked out at James's apartment that day and no one heard or saw a thing. I mean, that's speculation, but come on. I even asked the landlord's family about other tenants at the time, and the place actually had an on-site citizen reporter. James's neighbor, Robert, was who the caretakers would go to every week to see who'd been arrested, who'd been in a fight, and just generally what was even going on down there from week to week. One of the things that struck me was the fact that many of the rumors seemed to coalesce there at the mansions, whether they're about that actual building or not. For example, theories involving Frank often feature a big steel door in a basement. There's a big steel door in the basement of the mansions. The basement is large with several rooms. One had a long three basin sink in it. One was for access to the gas lines that supply the apartments. One had nothing in it but a giant pit, likely the lower terminus of a dumbwaiter at one time or another. But there was for sure a big steel door. That rumor runs something like this. Someone heard from someone else who won't talk to me directly, but said this person could tell me that in one of Frank's rental properties, there's a big steel door with some uneven concrete in front of it. The uneven concrete, depending on which version of the story, is either there because of or the reason for Frank's decision to redo that section of the floor. Stories abound, but people claim to have done this concrete work for Frank in his basement where, the rumors go, they participated in the entombment of Damien Sharp. The list of alleged participants is long, but no one who's on it has responded to my messages or attempted to reach out to me, so none of that can be verified. I tried, but like many things with this case, it's coming up high on the folklore test for me. And for Brian. I asked City of Warren PD Chief Joe Spraveri back in our first interview about the houses that were searched as part of Frank's 2015 arrest for corrupt organizations. Joe told me that as a part of that arrest, all of his properties were searched. Nothing of evidentiary value related to Damien ever turned up. He talked a lot about it when we talked on numerous occasions about the need to adjust expectations ahead of something like a cadaver search, say. He said that through his work with the Warren County Drug Task Force, whether Damien was involved with selling drugs or not, a lot of tips came from the people in Warren who were being arrested on drug charges. The searches of those basements were a big deal, followed by a big letdown. Whether they were asked about it or not, Joe said, a lot of those rumors come from jails and requests from defendants for plea deals but when it comes time to put something tangible to prove the claims on the table, Joe said no one's delivered yet. None of that has anything to do with Prospect or with James, but I want you to understand that Warren is an old town with lots of old houses, and there are probably a ton of houses with big steel doors in them. I'm not saying the steel doors at the mansion's mystery solved. I'm saying someone saw a big steel door one time, like the one I saw in the basement of Prospect Mansions, and it looked like the kind of place someone would bury a body. Having seen a steel door in a basement is enough for some people, and that is how some folklore starts. Steel doors all over this county, and not one of them has yielded physical evidence of any kind to this point, to my knowledge. So, legends have kernels of truth. If you've ever seen that movie Big Fish, this case is a lot like that. There's a sort of truth behind it, but it's a far less spectacular version of it behind the rumored version. Anyhow, it's Saturday afternoon and Damien's got some money. He's looking for some pot and he's standing at the bottom of that exterior staircase outside Jim's place. I've gone both up and down that staircase and it's sturdy and all, but it's a beast. I've never broken a bone, so I've never tried to navigate stairs on crutches. People tell me it wouldn't have been that hard, but I can tell you that with two perfectly healthy legs and all my joints in order, I hesitated at the bottom and at the top of those stairs. Probably more so at the top because down was worse than up. They're sturdy, but your brain refuses to accept that fact, basically. Staircase is no joke, and it wasn't then by any means either, family members the past property owner tell me. Furthermore, those family members said in 2002, a row of pine trees ran the length of the driveway. They've since been cut down, but there was no hallway light once you got to the door at the top of that staircase. 
it's a short hallway, sort of zigzag to accommodate the shape of the overall structure itself with corners and nooks, like a lot of old places. But family members told me at night, you were feeling your way down that hallway or you had a light of your own. So one difficult to navigate environment followed by another just beyond the staircase and any neighbor who was home in any of the apartments, including the largest apartment, which takes up the entire attic, would likely have known someone was coming. He'd have made some noise on those crutches on the staircase, at least, if not in the hallway as well. So when I reached out to James, I honestly expected him to tell me to get lost. I mean, I basically opened with, hey, you remember that kid that went missing in 2002? Did you kill him? James had just been released from prison last October. I hit him up on January 4th. Honestly, James told me, quote, I don't think I can help you. It's been a very long time. So long, I honestly don't believe I can accurately tell you what transpired on the day I last saw him. I can, however, tell you he went his way and I went mine and that we were supposed to meet up later that night. After a little back and forth, James started having the same experience as most people who initially tell me I don't remember. He started remembering things. And 20 years is a long time, but it doesn't take much to get a mind working back through the experiences. And I find that most people wind up remembering more than they think they had stored in there once they start. It's not always put together real well, but there's a lot more there than they expected. Either way, James told me over the course of several weeks, the basic story of that hour in the apartment is this. Someone had to have dropped Damien off close by, James said, because he was on crutches. He didn't see Damien get there, James said. Doll is to the right of the building if you're looking at the front of it. It's on the same side as the staircase is on, but apartment 12 is in the back corner of the house, on the opposite side. So James couldn't have seen the street Damien approached from or him from his apartment. James said when Damien left, it took him about 30 seconds to get down the staircase, and James helped him, but he didn't see him arrive. So he can't confirm if he was driven there, and he can't confirm how easily or with what difficulty he got up those stairs. I asked James if it was true that Damien was there looking for a pound of weed. I'd heard other things, that Damien might have been after some coke or some meth. Those rumors don't bear out, and James said he wasn't looking for anything but that pound, though he and Damien had done cocaine together in the past at parties. What's crazy, James said early in our conversations, is that there's only so many people who could help him get what he was looking for the day I last saw him. James says that Damien told him he dealt with Frank over drugs in the past, but can't find anyone else to tell me this. I don't know if it's true or not, but James says it is, is all I'm telling you. Damien had money on him that he told James he'd gotten from another friend. He was looking to spend about $1,500 when he got there, James said. I don't math good, but let's give this a whirl, you guys. Stephen gives Damien around $30 to $50. Customer A gives Damien $900. We know from watching police interviews that Albert, the same Albert Dana says called the apartment when she and Damien's stepmom Stacy eventually checked there a week later. The interviews and evidence say that Albert gave Damien $700 for the same thing as customer A. So that's $1,630 to $1,650, give or take. That was Albert's rent money, he told police. And yeah, it sucked. It was missing now, too. Albert was actually in the police blotter with Damien on June 6th, believe it or not. That PFA violation, that was Albert. Albert Lee Milburn, 21, 603 Beach Street, was taken into custody by Warren Police and charged with violation of a protection from abuse order after officers were dispatched to an address on Lexington Avenue at 7.26 p.m. Wednesday on a report that he was present at the residence in violation of the court order. The blotter item reads... So on Wednesday, June 5th, 2002, at around 7.30 p.m., we know that Albert was on Lexington Avenue. Random fact, right? Not really, no. Because the biggest, most cavernous black hole of information in this story exists between Saturday, May 25th, and Monday, June 3rd. This doesn't fall within that time frame, but the black hole eats people up as well. And that black hole, you guys, just got a whole lot bigger with Brianna's revelation about seeing Damien anywhere between five and eight hours after he left James's place. And all these people, the ones who saw Damien that day or were around in that week with no real presence in the rumors are hard to explain. Obviously, they're all just folks. I mean, they all had lives. They all went and did things after Damien went missing, sure. The fact that that apartment sat around untouched for a week is absolutely unbelievable to me. And when Dana and Stacy got there before going to the police, Dana told me there were notes on the door. Some of them were kind of nasty, and some of them said things like, 
Hey, hope you're alright, but you know you need to make this right. Well, we know for sure at least one was from James. He told me that himself. Damien's case remains open with the City of Warren Police Department. Journalists can do a lot in these situations, but police have more resources than we can dream of. Detective Tiffany Dyke is the criminal investigator heading Damien's case up, and she's ready to hear from you. She told me. Call Tiffany at 814-723-2700 or email her at tdyke at police.cityofwarrenpa.gov. If you're scared of cops, fine. Be that way. Call Warren County Crime Stoppers instead. And if your information helps lead Tiffany to remains, Crime Stoppers is going to give you two grand. So, that'd be cool, yeah? Third option is, and will remain until Damien's found, Stacy at Two Moms Media. Message her on Facebook at Let's Find Damien. Damien met over a shared interest in controlled combat, James told me. We didn't hang out all the time, but we spoke every time our paths crossed, he said. MMA, combat sports, those were our connection. James actually has a rubber chicken story. Quote, I remember one time I walked him back to his apartment and he was dragging what appeared to be a dead chicken. It was fake, but you couldn't tell. And he was so drunk he could hardly walk, but he still wanted to spar. End quote. He wasn't sparring at the apartment that night, though, James said. Damien showed up looking for the pound, and honestly, more likely than not, I could have helped him, but he freaked me out, James told me. Damien pulled out his money, James said, and mind you, according to James, we partied together a few times. I did like an eight ball with him and the twins once. The twins are a couple brothers who graduated a few years after Damien, but aren't related to his disappearance in any way that I've ever heard of. But we never sold each other anything, James said. Smoked plenty of joints, did some drinking, but out of the blue he wants a pound of weed. Okay, he's a good enough guy, said James, but then he pulls out these crisp $100 bills clearly from Iraq because the numbers even matched or were in order, and I freaked out and thought that was strange. At that point, James said, he canceled the sale by calling time and temperature. Time and temperature, if you're not familiar, is a service you could call even back when phones still hung on your wall and stuff. It would tell you, get this, the time and the day's temperature forecast. And it would inform you of any precipitation that might be of note. 814-726-1600, you guys. James remembered the number. So you know I had to call it. Good afternoon. Today's date is Saturday, June 4th, Northwest Time, 3.20. The current temperature, 70. Warren area weather, sunny today, high near 70. Partly cloudy and cool tonight, low near 45. Thank you for calling. Jesus, I grew up on a cow farm with a driveway a quarter of a mile long. You know I called time and temperature just for something to do. My first time in temperature call in 30 years, and my immediate question is, I wonder how much Northwest paid for that ad. I'm all grown up. Anyhow, James said, everything about this deal felt fishy to him. The crisp hundreds, whether the numbers matched, it's impossible to figure out. I know that having lived a certain lifestyle, there are folks who get real uptight about bills being presented to them in a sequential order, but they're highly vigilant, these folks, so... Sometimes they see patterns in chaos and think the number of the bills adds up to the meaning of life and stuff. For example, I know interesting people. The point is, James didn't like the vibe Damien was putting off, and so I pushed the issue a little bit, not just with him, but with the police. One of the rumors, a minor one, is that Damien was put in the witness protection program, or he was possibly a confidential informant. Was it possible that Damien might have been a confidential informant? Now, beyond the amount of money or 
any substance known to man that he may or may not have had on him that day. Someone who doesn't want to get caught for selling drugs is automatically extra motivated to not get caught selling drugs. Snitches and what have you. If rumors at the time included the fact that Damien might have been a CI, he may have had more eyes on him than anyone is aware, but I don't get anyone who was in the life back in that day telling me that anyone thought Damien was a CI. So this whole thing with James, it reads more to me like an interaction I've seen go down more times than I care to admit. You smell like a cop. Get out of here. Didn't end like that, though, James said. He called time and temperature and let it tell him that the day was balmy and nice with an average high of 77 and rain forecast later in the evening. Based on research. And then he hung up and said to Damien, Bummer, dude. My guy is plumb out of marijuana. That's not a quote. Damien did make at least one call while he was there too, James said. At that point, according to James, quote, We hung out for a while. He invited me to a pay-per-view fight at his dad's, asked me if I wanted a party. I thought it was up Morrison Run, but it may have been Brown Run. James recalled that he thought Damien brought a videotape of a UFC fight because he wanted to show me a particular grappling move or fight. I remember watching something. We certainly hung out more than a half hour. Closer to an hour would be my guess. End quote. And then James said they headed out. James said he helped Damien down that metal exterior staircase and it took him about 30 seconds to get down it. Then James said he went to his sister's to borrow her tent and camping gear, but he figured she was already out camping because her dogs and all her gear was gone. So he went back home and dug his little tent out thinking he'd be going to a woods party that night. Here's Joe Bees again on the location of the party to the best of his memory, the vibe of Damien's woods parties, and also the last time that he saw Damien. Obviously, uh, I had spoke to you too, and I'll tell the, you know, the listeners, uh, the last time I saw him, and I don't remember the exact date, uh, but I know it was the week before, so it could have been Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, somewhere in there, and he had asked me if I wanted to go camping Memorial weekend and I already had other plans and I I remember telling him that I can I can remember exactly where I was sitting because I was sitting right outside of the skate park on the on the sidewalk leaning up against a glass window and he approached from second and uh, Liberty because I remember watching him walk toward well crutch towards yeah. me because it took him a while to get there uh, but then that was what he asked me and I was like oh I already got other plans he's like all right no you know no big deal do you and, say uh, pet camp and where my recollection is Brown Run, but I, the thing with that conversation is I don't remember if he said Brown Run or if in my brain uh, I built that conversation to be geared towards Brown Run because that was where, to me, he always camped. So, so I think part of the problem, too, is that people will tell me he was he invited me to a party on Brown Run. And I say, well, where on Brown Run? And it's like all of it. Well, that could mean 160. Right. Could mean 163, it would have been 160. Okay. 160 was to me was his spot. His spot. Yeah. Do you know like specific spots that he liked or did he just kind of pick out wherever he got? I So the only times I had ever and this is a rare for a worn kid, but the only times I ever really camped up Brown Run and, uh, you know, partied as a high school kid was a. Uh, with him and then i think one of like i think i would say a total of maybe three four times i actually went up to brown run so i would never i can't even like picture that road too well in my head uh morrison run was where you know me and my other group of friends would go so that was my like that was my area yeah yeah. (laughs) morrison run what was the vibe of his woods parties like what kind of party were you going to if you were going Uh, to one of his the only, one of the, I mean, I always had fun at him. Yeah. I never had any issues at him or anything like that. I know I never was like, this it was, sucks. It was chill. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, I was just hanging out. Uh, but uh, one credit I always still to this day give to Damien is I was super against Chinese food. I could not eat it. <laughs> no? I didn't like, yeah, just, and it, it was one of those things I just yeah. never tried it. I was just like, Ugh. yeah. It just looks gross. Hard no. Uh, well, I remember one night we went up there, and I was real. I was getting hungry, and I had no food with me. And Damien had General Tso's chicken, yeah, and rice. And he was like, "You can have some." And I'm like, "Oh man, I don't know." He's like, "Just try it." You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you never even tried it before. How can you hate it? Kind yeah. of thing. So 
I did, and so and I still love it to this day. So yeah. anytime I eat General Sows, I always think like I never would have tried this if Damien hadn't. I love it. Somewhat pressured me. <laughs> I feel like that could be a good collection of essays. I feel like everybody has that story because oh, no yeah. kid ever wants Chinese food until they have it. Like what's the yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's food. what it was. Except for <laughs> later on that evening, James said I tried to call him to hook back up like we were supposed to. Someone answered the phone and asked if it was me, but wouldn't tell me who they were. I actually walked down to his apartment at least twice, James told me, and everything was open, but no one was there. After the second time, I figured I missed out, went and bought a 40 and some food, rented a movie, and went back home. Whenever we parted ways, James said, I helped him down the stairs and was under the impression that he had a ride coming. In the days following that Saturday evening encounter at his place, James said, he kept going back to Damien's. Why? Because he'd loaned Damien some money that night. James couldn't remember how much, but supplements from evidence indicate that James told police at the time he gave Damien $100. I asked James about that, and his response was that Damien said he didn't have enough to cop, so I don't remember what I gave him, but it wasn't much, and he was supposed to give it back to me later that night. At that party, where everyone was planning to see him, and no one did. That money he loaned Damien, James told me last January, is why I left the nasty messages on his door. I thought he was ducking me. James went on to tell me that he went to his house the next day or maybe two or three days later. Around five to six people were hanging out on the porch, James said, and they told him that Damien wasn't around. James didn't believe them, he said, and he waited at the corner. James said he also, quote, went to his place once and everything was open. Both doors and the house looked like a hurricane came through. Not sure who was there, James said, but it looked to me like his place was ransacked. James explained that the call or two that Damien made while there were, he thought, for a ride. That's why he took off on his bike to get his camping things when they left the apartment. James told me that when he was questioned by police, he told them to check his phone records and find out who Damien called. Dana confirmed that the family was told that James was the last person to see Damien. She said that, when he went to prison for that aggravated assault, she, Janine, and other family members went to his hearings and trials because in the absence of any other narrative than James was the last one to see him, family needed something to believe so badly that she said they accepted James as the guy. Um, do you feel like you were told to believe this because it's easy? Do you know what I mean? Um, at one time, there's a gentleman, didn't know who he was. I wouldn't know him today if I seen him, you know. And I don't know, I don't remember where it came about and how it came about, if it was the police or rumor or what, you know, that, um, or one of maybe his friends said, you know, that Damien had gone to person. But we knew this supposedly was the last person to see him alive. Um, someone dropped him off there. And uh, like a half a block away, Damien was on his crutches, you know, and never seen again. So, of course, we were just, like I said, wanted something so bad. Sure. I believe that uh, uh, got in some trouble. Well, is actually, from what I understand, his girlfriend was pregnant at the time. And I kept on getting mad at the police saying, what does his girlfriend say? What does she say? You know, and they're saying, well, he's not talking. He says he doesn't know anything. Maybe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we can't tell you everything that was, you know, he's told us. And we're like, question the girlfriend, question the girlfriend. And then they said, you know, and then they hit on the on our humanity side and said, Dana, you know, she's pregnant mm -hmm. and he's capable of hurting Damien. What do you think? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't want to put this woman in, in any kind of danger. I understand what you're doing. So we back off. And the assault, I'll admit on my end, did seem to point to a pattern of behavior for James that didn't look great for what Damien may have encountered. But I was able to determine through examining law enforcement's evidence in this case that Prospect Mansions was searched with dogs in 2003 as well. While one indication led to a car and its contents being forensically evaluated, law enforcement sources have told me that nothing ever came of that. I asked Stephen whether he was ever told anything about James and what happened in the apartment before I ever talked to James. Because I never expected James to speak with me, let alone give me an entire rundown. Stephen said that, quote, all the police told me was that James said Damien was there and he used James's phone to call for a ride and that's all. When they told me that, I asked them if they pulled the phone records to see who was called. They said they needed to bust James with drugs before they could search his phone records. 
I then asked them if James would voluntarily share his phone records, and Comenti told me, that's not how it works, end quote. I also reached out to the friend who gave Damien that $900 and Stephen as well, just to see if anyone could remember what kind of condition the bills were in. I figured if the guys said they fished them out of the river or some shit behind the refinery, they clearly weren't crispy hundies. Maybe I could poke a credibility hole in some or all of James's statement that way. But no, no one recalls what kind of condition those bills were in. So if James did cancel that sale, and if Brianna's statement holds, then Damien was standing on Prospect Street around 6 p.m. on Saturday night waiting for someone to pick him up, or if not, then planning to walk somewhere or crutch there, which is unlikely by all accounts. Most people agree he got around okay, but he was already getting rides that day. No reason to think he'd stop now. Damien's best friend Dave says that he did get a call from Damien about 2 or 3 in the afternoon that Saturday. Memory of the course of 20 years can be tricky. So Dave remembers it being around 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Everyone agrees with the 5 to 6 p.m. time frame for Damien to be at James's apartment. Dave said he didn't remember hearing any background noise and just assumed that Damien was calling from his place, but Dave made plans with Damien at that Friday, May 24th house party, the one with the chicken in the sink, to go to the woods party with him. Something he already knew about, Dave told me. But then, Dave said, when Damien called to firm those plans up Saturday afternoon, wherever he was, he made that call. Dave said Damien told him he was running around to get stuff for it. Dave cited a hangover as his reason for not wanting to go out that night. And Damien seemed a bit annoyed, he said, but otherwise the two left it at that. So Saturday, May 25th to Monday, June 3rd, James goes to the apartment. Even in evidence, there are reports of people having seen James and interacted with him on trips to try and find Damien and likely that money that he loaned him. In his memory of the apartment over the days following Damien's disappearance, interesting. Quote, I also went to his place once and everything was open, both doors, and the house looked like a hurricane came through. Not sure who was there, but it looked to me like the place was ransacked. That's a direct quote from James. If all this went down in the two to three days following his disappearance between Sunday, May 26th, and say, Wednesday, May 29th, that's still three days before Dana got word, at some point over the following weekend, that she should even go to Damien's apartment. When she and Stacy got there, she described it as messy, but not ransacked. The issue of that key needs to be resolved. Who had it? Who turned it in? And under what circumstances? I'll continue to dig, but for now, it remains unclear. None of these guys had a cell phone at the time, from what I understand, and the only landline phone provider at the time was Verizon, so I reached out to Verizon to ask them whether any phone records were requested by law enforcement in 2002 for the billing telephone numbers associated with Damien or with James. The answer was no. I asked law enforcement who was responsible for pulling the phone records or if it was ever even considered. I was told that in 2003, when the case resurged with Rick Brecht as the lead investigator, there was a task force of sorts formed, and the sheriff's department was supposed to get those records. Whether or not they were ever recovered, I'm not sure, but nothing exists in evidence that I'm aware of. Before we head into a final wrap-up for this episode, I want to give you the rest of what Joe Bees had to say about his friend Davian and about his experience working as a police officer in the town where his friend went missing. Here's Joe. Yeah, I mean, uh, Damian was like... I think that he was fueled off of how people perceived him. If they were afraid of him, he would play that card. If they liked him and treated him with respect, then he would do the same in return. Uh, one of the things that I always thought was funny, too, was I remember a time that my mother and I were at Perkins when they were still open. So this is going way back. Uh, and... Damien approached us because I, I, you know, we were friends and he saw me and he came over and started talking uh, to me and my mom. And when he walked away, I remember my mom saying, why do people like what are the, what's their issue with him? Yeah, because he, you know, had dark hair and sometimes painted his fingernails. Like mm, right. she was like, he's the nicest kid I've ever met. Yeah. Uh, so it was always just like. That was, but that was who Damien was. If you, you know, he was, he always told me when I just remember whenever we'd like be hanging out and we'd be going different places, he would say, uh, you know, you come with me, you leave with me, you're my people. Like he was just very protective of the people he was close to. And that's just, you know, he had a big heart. And so I was just kind of 
view, you know, that's yeah. how I viewed him. And still that's kind do. of the sense yeah. I get. It's like what you see is what you get, and yeah. what you present is what he responds exactly. to. Yeah, he, that's that's it. I think that he, he was just a – that's a good way to put it, responsive. Mm-hmm. And it was how you approached him was how – what that dictated what response you would get from him, whether it was, you know, again, being afraid of him uh, because mm-hmm. of stories you might have heard or if it was – uh, you know, like I did, just kind of walked up to him and was like, hey, dude, I play guitar, too. Yeah. And he was just like, oh, all right. And we talked about guitar. Do you think he was aware of, like, it seems like to me he liked the responses from other people because it was entertaining to him because he was already thinking deeply about stuff. Do you feel like that's accurate or I no? Think, yeah, I do. I do think that because I think that Damien was, like, one of those kids who was wise beyond his years a little bit. Mm-hmm. And because of that... Uh, you know, he, he kind of maybe toyed with people occasionally. Yeah, yeah I get that sense. If they, you know, depending on the vibe they were giving him, he would play off of that. Yeah. And, and yeah, I do think that some of it was for his own entertainment. Okay. It was, you know, he didn't let anybody else in on that. Yeah. It was just his own, in his own you, brain. He that was, was a game you, he was yeah, playing you could, on his you own. You could, like, yeah. see the chuckle or the smirk. You could kind of right. pick up on when that was happening. But. I wondered. I wondered if that was the case. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, obviously... Uh, I had spoke to you too, and I'll tell the, you know, more, um, just talking family and all, and all that stuff. Uh, but when I got hired at Warren, uh, PD was, would have been, my start date was actually March 3rd, 2014. So what's that? 12, 12 years after disappearance. Uh, I remember when, as soon as I started out, we, I started out on night shift, and night shift in Warren can be hit or miss. Yeah. You know, we can have busy nights. We can have nights where there's nothing. When you, And then you're talking March, it's still cold out. Uh, there's only so many roads you can drive, right. and the town seems to, like, shrink almost because there's nobody out on the roads. There's nobody outside doing anything because it's cold. And uh, my FTO was, who is now Captain Doherty, uh, but he was just Officer Doherty then. But, uh, you know, I asked him, I said, can I read, you know, the reports and stuff and absolutely you can so i i that was a interest i had right away Mm -hmm. and i remember over the course of uh several night shifts because it's a very very big case and and it wasn't the whole eight hours you know i'd take a when we had downtime i'd take an hour or two and just start reading and uh you know it was interesting to see how the investigation uh went and the players involved the people interviewed and all of that uh, just because it was all people who I knew for the most part. I mean, there was definitely uh, there was definitely a group of people who Damien associated with that at my 17, 16, 17-year-old 17 age, I was unaware that mm-hmm. they were around because they weren't at his apartment. They weren't, uh, you know, at the skate park, which yeah. would have been the two places I saw him frequently. So, uh, but, like, there was, you know, the there's a pretty decent list of names in there that I was like, oh, who the hell is this guy? Like, I've never even heard of this you? person. Yeah, well, because I didn't know yeah. them. And uh, to even hear, you know, that they were maybe potential suspects or whatever, and I'm like, I have, you know, no clue who that guy even is. So this is, <laughs> like some, like I said, a lot of them interviewed I did know, but then there was a, a good group of names that I was like, I've never heard of this person before. But again, I chalk that up to, uh, knowing what I know now about Warren, having worked on the law enforcement side of it, there was a lot of things going on in the late 90s and early 2000s here in Warren that I was just naive to because I was a kid riding my bike, you know, around town. So train is just going to be a total dick. To finish up this week, I just want to talk about the fact that it took me a year to get this level of information on this case. It sucks to come to you today and tell you that I don't know who had that key or how it traveled to wherever it ended up. It sucks so hard to tell you that I don't know who ransacked the apartment or if it was even ransacked or who cleaned it or if it was cleaned. It can feel like you failed at everything when you're not getting those little pieces that you need. But to even be able to undertake this story to begin with is a blessing. It's not something your daily newspaper can or would do. It's investigative. Daily papers can't and will never investigate, they report. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics 
says there were 46,700 jobs for news analysts, reporters, and journalists in 2020. And that's across newspapers, television, radio, websites, and magazines. The median annual wage was $48,300. Ha ha ha. Ha 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 ha. No, it's in Warren. The majority of those people will spend their days writing one to three stories about things like local and national events, politics, and sports. Their assignments will change daily. Their stories will be meant to inform and educate at a shallow depth, but a constant pace. Very few of them will spend a full week digging into the guts of a story. Even fewer will spend a year. Especially in smaller areas like Warren, there's just not a budget for it. The same is true in law enforcement. In 2019, the National Institute of Justice issued a new publication on best practices for implementing and sustaining a cold case investigation unit. In the introduction, the authors called the current state of unresolved homicides in the United States a crisis. Among other things, the authors cite a lack of consistency regarding what even constitutes an unresolved case. Does it include sexual crimes or just assaults? Do they need to remain unresolved for one year? Five? Ten? At what point do we consider a case to have gone cold? The very few agencies responsible for investigating them agree on those working definitions. So it's really kind of hard to even get a sense of the scope of the problem if we can't establish a standard definition of what constitutes it. But get this, you guys, the publication goes on to state that, quote, missing persons and unidentified human remains cases are often the result of violent crime, although many of these cases are classified as having an undetermined cause. As such, they are not included in violent crime statistics. Thus, the number of unresolved crimes is likely much higher than currently estimated. And out of the 27,927 active and published missing persons and unidentified persons cases listed in the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NAMIS, in February of 2019, approximately 5,163 of the unidentified persons cases, 48%, have an undetermined manner of death. 1,945 out of 15,444 open missing persons cases have been marked as foul play by families or law enforcement, and in another 12,370 cases, or 80%, the possibility of foul play has yet to be determined. Realistically, 242,000 unresolved homicides is an extremely conservative estimate because a large number of death investigations and missing persons cases remain unknown. Joe Spraveri told me that Damien's case was submitted to a cold case task force set up by the attorney general's office at one point. It wasn't selected. Um, the, attorney, the state attorney general's office, uh, at one point, they wanted to create a cold case division within the state of Pennsylvania, a group of investigators that strictly went around to assist other agencies with cold case files. Um, they were contacted about the Damien case and um, they were sent the information and they, they did not accept the case. The reason, in my opinion, that it wasn't accepted is because of how challenging and how difficult it is. And if you're starting a pilot program, you don't want to just have this be on your caseload for the next 20 years as, you're, as now your case file. Compared with other cases you've had, how does this compare in terms of complexity? It's it's beyond it's 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 beyond complex. Um, to me, I'm like, is this a baseline? Is this standard? Is this this is outrageous? The amount of information there's. And, and you have law enforcement officers um, that have since retired as of this date that they've spent the better part of their career trying to figure this out, and you know it all comes back to discrepancies. You know, regarding the day that he actually did go missing, uh, the day that it was reported, you know. It's not just police departments around the country feeling the pinch. Newsrooms have been bleeding resources for the better part of two decades now. Uh, there's a myriad of reasons for that, not the least of which is what I believe was a failure to understand the true impact of what the Internet and the digital age was going to do to news consumption. But still, newsrooms continue to get smaller and Journalists are being asked to do more with less, 
all while the cost for most print publications continues to rise. Hell, it's one of the reasons we founded Your Daily Local two years ago. From our About Us section at YourDailyLocal.com, quote, The disappearance of hometown newspapers has had a calamitous effect on the ability of residents to stay informed about the people, places, and events that matter most to them. Our goal is to change that and give people the news that actually affects their daily lives, end quote. We didn't have investigative reporting specifically in mind when we wrote that, but that may be one of the most significant casualties of the current media landscape. Most newsrooms just don't have the resources, or the desire, quite frankly, to allow their reporters to dedicate multiple days, let alone weeks or months, to a single story. That's why there was no hesitation on my part when Stacy first approached me about, about this podcast. I knew that she would dedicate the kind of time and effort necessary to tell Damien's story, and I knew that we would be able to provide the additional resources when needed to ensure that full story is told, or at least as much of the full story as can be told while he remains missing. To be clear, the fault here doesn't lie with the reporters. There's only so much a reporter can do when faced with the prospect of meeting arbitrary byline quotas in order to keep their job. With corporate mindsets focused solely on profits instead of producing quality journalism and far too many outlets under the umbrella of one corporate entity or another, the purpose of a free press has been lost. Too often, stories are given just enough lip service to pass as informative. Rarely are standard follow-up questions asked of officials in typical settings, much less the kind of probative questions that lead to actual investigative reporting. There are exceptions, of course. Spotlight PA immediately comes to mind. But that an entire outlet dedicated to accountability journalism needed to be created should tell you all you need to know about the current state of media in this country. Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacy Gross. Executive producers are Stacy Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacy Gross. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It helps us out a ton.